Now, I'm not religious, not even remotely. Is there stuff that happens that science cannot explain? Yes, absolutely. Can religion explain it? Maybe, maybe not. I'm also not a diehard believer in that other religion, the one religion known as science and mathematics. Yes, I do consider it a religion, or at least it's treated as, a, as such by so many these days. Well, the science says this. Does it really say that? Well, must it be fact then? Is that right? Maybe not. So I'm not religious, and I'm no science type. But nothing is more interesting to me than God, worship, and the myths, in particular the violent ones surrounding religion. Without God and ideology, well, what is history? It's boring, and it remains context-free. To me, God worship trumps science worship as far as history is concerned. What fascinates me about God is how religion serves up brilliant festivals such as Christmas with days off work, tons of food, and loads of presidents, and at the same time also serves up religious wars and extreme violence and hatred. One of these is the action and activity of anti-Semitism. Go back to the prior episode, episode 60, for more on that. In my view, all religions are equal, equally odd. So pointing fingers at one group by another group baffles, baffles me, especially if it comes from another group who have out there beliefs themselves, and they all have those. To me, if there is a hell, there's a 100% chance of a spot there for me, and maybe, just maybe, for you. This is Luke 16, 19, 31, and I quote, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and who feasted every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with swords, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. Now Mark 9.43.48 And if your hand causes you to sit, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to throw it into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Where their worm does not die, the fire is not quenched. Wow, that's the stuff religion is made of. It's fascinating and interesting. For Muslims, in book 87, Hadith 155, called Interpretation of Dreams of Shaykh al-Bukhari, Muhammad talked of angels, each with a mace of iron, who guarded hell and then expanded on the Quran's discourse, describing Jannah, Jannah being hell, by recounting it as a place that, and I quote here, was built inside like a well, and it had side posts like those of a well, and beside each post there was an angel carrying an iron mace. I saw therein many people hanging upside down with iron chains, and I recognized therein some men from the Quraysh, and that was a tribe that Muhammad was fighting at the time. According to Muhammad, the majority of the inhabitants of hell will be women, due to an inclination for gossip, conjecture, and idle chatter. However, 
other hadiths imply that the majority of women will be in paradise. Inconsistencies like that make religion fascinating for me. In fact, then you need people to interpret it. A chap called Al Qutribi, I'm pronouncing that wrong, reconciled the hadith that stated that the majority of inhabitants of Jannah would be women by recommending that many of the women that will form the majority in hell will be among the sinners that would stay there merely temporarily and would then be brought out of hell into paradise. Thereafter, the majority of people of paradise would be women. In religion and some folklore, hell is a location. Yes, a location. In the afterlife, where evil souls are subjected to punitive suffering, often through torture, as eternal punishment after death. That's a place. It's a location. Beliefs that have a linear divine history often depict hells as eternal destinations, the biggest of which are Christianity and Islam. However, philosophies with reincarnation usually depict hell as an intermediary period between incarnations, as is the case with the thermic belief systems. Religions typically locate hell in another dimension or under Earth's surface. Other afterlife destinations include heaven, paradise, purgatory, and the underworld. Heaven is often described as the highest place, the holiest place, a paradise, in contrast to hell or the underworld or the low places, and universally or conditionally accessible by earthly beings according to various standards. Standards of divine goodness, piety, faith, or other virtues, or bright beliefs, or simply divine will. Some believe in the possibility of a heaven on earth in a world to come. In paradise, there is only one, peace, prosperity, happiness. Paradise is a place of contentment, a land of luxury and fulfillment. Paradise is often described as a higher place, the holiest place, in contrast to this world or the underworlds. Purgatory, and I love that word, by the way. The Catholic Church holds that all who die in God's grace and friendship but still are perfectly purified undergo the process of purification, which the Church calls purgatory so as to achieve the holiness necessary to enter the joy of heaven. Catholicism bases its teachings also on the practice of praying for the dead in use within the church ever since the church began. Purgatory. The underworld, on the other hand, is the supernatural world of the dead in various religious traditions and myths. Located below the world of the living, the concept of an underworld is found in almost every or many civilizations and may be as old as humanity itself. The earliest written form of the Germanic word God comes from the 6th century Christian codex Argentinius. The English word itself is derived from the Proto-Germanic Gudan. The reconstructed Proto-Indo-European forms Gu, To, Ng was likely to be based on the root Gohua, which means either to call or to invoke. The Germanic words for God were originally neuter, applied to both genders, but during the process of Christianization of the Germanic people from their indigenous German paganism, the word became masculine. The English word God and its counterparts in other languages are normally used for any and all conceptions and in spite of significant differences between religions themselves. The term remains an English translation common to all. The word Allah is the Arabic term. God also may be given a proper name in monotheistic currents of Hinduism which emphasized the personal nature of God, with early references to his name as Krishna, Vasudev in the Bhagavad Gita, or later as Vishnu and Hari. Ahura Mazda is a name for God used in Zoroastrianism. Waheguru is a term most often used in Sikhism to refer to God. It means wonderful teacher in the Punjabi language. 
In the Hebrew Bible, the titles of God include Elohim, which means God, Adoni, meaning Lord, and others, and the name Yahweh. In Hindi, the word for God is Bhagwan or Ishwar. Let's look at the Abrahamic religions. The Abrahamic God, in this sense, is the conception of God that remains a common attribute to all three traditions, Christianity, Islam, and Judaism. God is conceived of as eternal, omnipotent, omniscient, and as the creator of the universe. God is further held to have the properties of holiness, justice, oblivious, and omnipresence. Proponents of the Abrahamic faiths believe that God is so transcendent, meaning that he is outside space and outside time, and therefore not subject to anything within his creation, but at the same time a personal God involved, listening to prayer and reacting to the actions of his creatures. And I'm going to quote here from Manimondi's 13 Principles of Faith. This is the second principle. This is from Judaism. God, the cause of all, is one. This does not mean one as in one of the series, nor one like a species, nor one as in an object that is made up of many elements, nor as a single simple object that is infinitely divisible. Rather, God is a unity, unlike any other possible unity. Judaism, being the original Abrahamic religion, as the first one, the original, the first, is based on a strict exclusive monotheism, finding its origins in the sole veneration of God, Yuah, the predecessor to the Abrahamic conception of God. This is referred to in the Torah as, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Yuah was the national God of ancient Israel and Judah. His origins reach at least to the early Iron Age and likely to the late Bronze Age. In the oldest biblical literature, he is a storm and warrior deity who leads the heavenly army against Israel's enemies at the time the Israelites worshipped him alongside a variety of Canaanite gods and goddesses. Eventually, those other gods and goddesses like El and Baal merged and became one Yuhawite religion. Towards the end of the Babylonian captivity, the very existence of foreign gods was denied, and Yuhah was proclaimed as the creator of the cosmos and the one true god of the world. During the Second Temple period, speaking the name of Yuwa in public became regarded as taboo. So the Jews started to use the word Lord as an alternative. In Hinduism, the concept of God is complex and depends on the particular tradition. Forms of theism find mention in the Bhagavad Gita. Emotional or loving devotion, i.e. Pakti, to a primary god such as avatars of Vishnu, i.e. Krishna, for example, became commonplace. In modern Hinduism, you will see the worship of Vishnu, Shiva, and Devi, the Divine Mother, all considered supreme deities and the formless supreme reality or Brahman. Other minor sects such as Ganpati focus on Ganesha or Surya the sun. Brahman, however, suggests that the highest universal principle, the ultimate reality in the universe, in the major school of Hindu philosophy, it is the material, efficient, formal and final cause of all that exists. It is the pervasive, infinite, eternal truth, consciousness and bliss, which does not change, yet in the cause of all changes. Brahman, as a metaphysical concept, refers to the single binding unity behind diversity in all that exists in the universe. That is everything. Brahman is a key concept found in the Vedas and it is extensively discussed in the early Upanishads. 
The Vedas conceptualize Brahman as the cosmic principle. In the Upanishads, it has been variously described as Sat, Sit, Ananda, i.e. truth, consciousness, bliss, and as the unchanging permanent highest reality. Brahman is discussed in Hindu texts with the concept of Atman, a Sanskrit word that refers to the universal self or self-existence essence of human beings as distinct from the ego versus Brahman. Brahman is a Sanskrit word that means higher in some context and highest or supreme in the meaning of the higher self. Brahman may not be God, but in the Jewish world, it certainly is. But the existence of God remains a subject of debate in the philosophy of religion and in popular culture. In philosophical terms, the question of the existence of God involves the disciplines of epistemology, i.e. the nature and scope of knowledge, and ontology, i.e. the study of the nature of being, existence, or reality, and the theory of value, meaning since some definitions of God include perfection, so you have to include value. Oddly, the Western tradition of philosophical discussion of the existence of God began out east in Greece. Greece was never and is not a Western country. That started with Plato and Aristotle, who made arguments that would now be categorized as cosmological. A cosmological argument in natural theology is an argument which claims that the existence of God can be inferred from the facts concerning causation, explanation, change, motion, contingency, dependency, or finitude with respect to the universe or some totality of objects. The basis premise of all these arguments involve the concept of causation. The conclusion of these arguments is that there exists a first cause for whichever group of things is argued as a cause and subsequently deemed to be God. Atheists view arguments for the existence of God as insufficient, mistaken, or outweighed by the arguments against it, whereas some religions, such as Jainism, reject the possibility of created deity in outright. Philosophers who have provided arguments against the existence of God include Bertrand Russell. Indeed, theism and atheism are positions of belief or lack of it, while Gnosticism and agnosticism are positions of knowledge or lack of it. Agnosticism concerns belief about God's conceptual coherence. Apathism concerns belief about the practical importance of whether God exists at all. For the purposes of discussion, Richard Dawkins described seven milestones on his spectrum of theistic probability. They are Strong theist 100% probability that God exists. In the words of C.G. Jung, I do not believe I know. M2. A de facto theist. Very high probability, but short of 100%. I don't know for certain, but I strongly believe in God and live my life on the assumption that he is there. Number 3. Leaning towards theism. That's higher than 50%, but not very high. I'm very uncertain, but I'm inclined to believe in God. 4. Completely impartial, meaning exactly 50%. God's existence and non-existence are equally the same. Number 5. Leaning towards atheism. Lower than 50%, but not very low. Not very low. I do not know whether God exists, but I'm inclined to be skeptical. Number 6. A de facto atheist. Very low probability, but a short of zero. I don't know for certain, but I think God is very improbable, and I live my life on the assumption that he is not there. And finally, seven, strong atheist. In other words, I know there is no God, with the same conviction as Jung knows there is one. 
To be clear, agnosticism is the view that the true value of certain claims, especially claims about the existence of any deity, but other religious and metaphysical claims, is unknown or unknowable. They don't care about the existence or not of God. However, atheists, on the other hand, religiously, religiously discount God's existence. In Article 3, Question 2, first part of his Summa Theologica, Thomas Aquinas developed his five arguments for God's existence. These arguments are grounded in an asked Aristotelian ontology and make use of the infinite regression argument. Aquinas did not intend to fully prove the existence of God, as he is orthodoxly convinced, but proposed his five ways as a first stage, which he built upon later in his work. His five ways argued from the unmoved mover, first cause, necessary being, argument from degree, and the argument from final cause. So let's do them one at a time. Number one, that unmoved mover argument asserts that from our experience of motion in the universe, motion being the transition from potentially to actuality, we can see there must have been an initial mover. Aquinas argued that whatever is in motion must be put in motion by another thing, so there must be an unmoved mover. Number two, his argument from the first cause started with the premise that it is impossible for a being to cause itself because it would have to exist before it caused itself, and that it is impossible for there to be an infinite chain of causes which would result in infinite regress. Therefore, there must be a first cause, itself uncaused. Confused yet? More to come. Number three. The argument from necessary being asserts that all beings are contingent, meaning that it is possible for them not to exist. Aquinas argued that if everything can possibly not exist, there must have been a time when nothing existed, as things exist now. There must exist a being with necessary existence regarded as God. 4. He argued from degree, meaning the degree of occurrences. So, the degrees of goodness. He believed that things which are called good must be called good in relation to a standard of good, a maximum. There must be a maximum goodness, that which causes all goodness. Then number five, finally, the argument from final cause asserts the view that non-intelligent objects are ordered towards a purpose. He argued that these objects cannot be ordered unless they are done so by an intelligent being which means there must be an intelligent being to move objects to their ends, meaning God. Back to Hinduism. The school of Vedanta argues that one of the proofs of the existence of God is the law of karma. In a contemporary to Brahma sutras, Atit Shankara argues that the original karmic actions themselves cannot bring about the proper results at some future time. Neither can super non-intelligent qualities like Adastra, by themselves meditate the appropriate, justly deserved pleasure and pain. The fruits, according to him, must be administered through the action of a conscious agent, namely a supreme being, that being, being Yeshua. Atheistic Hindu doctrines, yes, you heard that right, atheist Hindu doctrines, cite various arguments for rejecting a creator God or Ishwar. They say that God cannot be proved and hence they cannot be admitted to exist. Ultimately, though, no scientific evidence of God's existence has been found. Therefore, the scientific consensus is that whether God exists or not is unknown. But it is my contention 
that science, reason, and logic have become the new religions. People replace temples with science labs, tout, follow the science, all because they have started to worship at the altar of science and maths. It is also why I personally prefer agnosticism versus full-on atheism that I think renders itself to a converting faith-based system. At least as an agnostic, you can attend all religious holidays, eat whatever you like, and then use science to get from one pub to another. Also, as an, as an agnostic, I feel duty-bound and to hell. Yes, the plus is it is full of women. However, they are permanently bickering and gossiping, and that would be a pain in particular if that was for eternity. Look on the bright side. You are not having to worship living gods anymore, who happen to be your political masters, such as Roman emperors and Egyptian pharaohs. You can get away these days with worshipping mythical beings. So cool. That said, there are ample so-called people who claim to be connected to God, such as Radhe Ma in India. She touted herself as a goddess, attained followers, and made a ton of money. Brilliant if you can do it. I see that as a great business opportunity. Not to say the temples, churches, and mosques that are not hubs of business already. They absolutely are. The history of God, the history of trade, the history of politics, the history of ideology, the history of thought. Everything ultimately goes down to belief. And God is a belief system as much as communism and capitalism. God is there and it is a brilliant solution to answering questions that you cannot find answers to. And it creates a sense of community. You go to church or you go to a temple or you go to a mosque or whatever you want to do. It creates a sense of community. Sure, there are downsides. Yes, things like the crusades and jihad and all that kind of stuff is dicey to say the least. You don't want to be involved in that. You don't want to go anywhere near that. No, there are some dicey, dodgy stuff about God. No question whatsoever. But God, worship, religion, holidays, great food, drink, all of the stuff that we do that's so fun is related to religion. And we should think about keeping the best parts and eliminating the worst parts. Let's not be atheists. Let's just all have a ton of fun. Science is definitely useful, but you don't get a day off for Gravity Discovery Day. You get the day off for Christmas Day. There is something to be said about science. It has helped us immensely. Science got people into space. It got drugs in people so that you could be safe. But at the same time, modern science is like a religion. And the reason for that is that at our base, at our core, humans are designed for something more. And that is when we turn something into a religion, into something beyond what we have right now. Even science, even maths, those people that only believe in science and only maths, they do it religiously. The atheists, they're atheists and they're religiously atheist. They're trying to convert the religion-type folks into atheism. You don't have to be religious. You just have to accept that religion is more fun than science, and it's more holidays than science, and you should go out and enjoy yourself. All right? That's it. And by the way, this whole episode was recorded with by me having the worst possible cough in the world. That edit button was anyway. 
Hope you enjoyed it. And do like the show if you can on your podcast platform of choice. Thank you so very much. Thank you.